It is massive, almost beyond comprehension. Seemingly constant, yet violently dynamic. Consisting of swirling clouds of dust and gas, it is a giant fusion engine that drives the solar system. Loops of plasma rise from the sun's surface, so large they would dwarf Earth. It would actually take 1.3 million planets the size of Earth to fill the sun's volume. In fact, the sun contains 98.9% of all the mass in our solar system. Its energy is also beyond comprehension. It seethes and boils like a living thing. The surface of the sun is around 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. We can't even fathom such temperatures. What's more, the core consists of hydrogen atoms under such intense pressure that they fuse together, creating helium that then burns at nearly 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. And yet, the sun's powerful and intense heat also gives us warmth and life and beauty. It is big, powerful, majestic, dangerous majesty, radiant power, overwhelming splendor. If the sun is something to behold, how much more is Jesus, about whom was said, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. After all, it's only to Jesus that we sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Isn't that crazy? And what's, when I first watched that this week, I just couldn't help but think that that's a real place. Like that's not an idea. That's not, scientists wonder if, no, it's like a real place. Now how they know it's like, 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit? Yeah, I don't know that. But the size of that, like that's a literal place. You and I, I guess not literally get into a ship and travel there because obviously we couldn't. But if we could figuratively get into a literal ship and travel there, like there's a real there. It's not pretend. And I just sit and I just think about that, that right now, like in the universe, that is a real place, and if I could somehow be there, I could look at it, and it would be really there right in front of me, and I would just be, okay, this is crazy. I've never seen anything like this. If you think like the, the Rocky Mountains or the Pacific Ocean, when you finally show up for the first time to see them, you go, wow, isn't that amazing? Imagine the sun. And yet, I can spend a crazy amount of my time living under the sun's warmth, being somehow sustained by it and completely oblivious to it. I don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I wonder how the sun is doing. I wonder when it'll come up. <laughs> it's, uh, I literally, I don't know about you, I just, the alarm goes off, I start my day. Sometimes the sun's not up, sometimes the sun is up. But I just, it becomes like white noise. It becomes like background to my life, the sun does. I just kind of assume it'll be there. I kind of assume it exists. I kind of assume it's really, really big. Going back and, and thinking about it, I guess as a Canadian, I know how to complain a lot that it's too far away. 
right? Temperatures are too cold. And why can't the sun? I mean, I'm surprised so many Canadians don't love global warming, you know? And then I moved to Oklahoma where I complain that the sun's too close. <laughs> for a large part of the year, it feels like the sun's like right on top of me. But for the most part, I just go on about my day somewhat disconnected and oblivious to the reality of the sun. There was a book written a number of years ago that helped me think about this in spiritual terms. The book that was written was written by Craig Rochelle, the founding pastor of Life Church, and it was a really helpful read for me because it was like he was reading my mail, you know, when preachers do that. And the book is called The Christian Atheist, and essentially what he did with this book is he challenged us to maybe consider the fact that somehow, no matter what we say, I believe in God the Father, but I live as though he doesn't really exist. That's kind of the, the motto. If we were really going to be honest, that's kind of the song that we would sing. So he wrote this book called The Christian Atheist that had to really ask the question, I know what you say you believe, but if I looked at your life, if I looked at how you organized your life, how you spent your life, I would have to ask, like, do you really believe that that God that we sing about and that we find in the, in the, in the scriptures, is that really the God that you believe in? And if it is, don't you think your life would somehow look like or resemble the image of God? And so he asked some really good questions about being a practical atheist, essentially a Christian atheist. He says, like, why do you struggle um, with your past? Why are you still so ashamed of your past if you know that God really is who he says he is? Why are you not sure that he loves you? Why do you not pray the right way? Why do you wrestle with the fact that he is fair? Why, why do you believe in God, but you still won't forgive? Why is it that you can actually say, I believe in God, but I actually don't think my life can ever change? Why is it that you say that you believe in God and you still worry all the time? How is it that you can say, I believe in God, but I still pursue happiness at all cost? How can you say that you say you believe in God when you actually trust your money far more than anything else? How can you say you believe in God? He says in this book, it was good for me to read. How can you say you believe in God? when you don't share your faith. And he proposed that in the end, what we really are, are Christian atheists. And I was convicted by that. Now, I, I don't wanna, I, I literally don't wanna like split hairs on this issue, but if I were to write a book and now it would just look like I'm copying him, <laughs> I, I don't think he's right actually, that we're Christian atheists. Um, I think as I have reflected on it more about even my own life, I, I guess if you were to ask me what I truly believe, it's, you'll think I'm just kind of splitting hairs on this one. I'm really not. I, I think we're more of like Christian deists. You know what a deist is? See, an atheist is somebody who says, God does not exist. And it's really easy for me to go, that's not me. Like, I, I, listen, like, I, I know I don't share my faith like I should, but I really do believe that God exists. Well, then why don't you live your life that way? Well, but I'll tell you one thing. I really do believe that he exists. Like, I believe that God exists. I actually believe. Okay? I, don't, I don't think it would change. If I decided to not follow Jesus Christ, if I decided to live for myself, okay, 
I wouldn't give up on the fact that there was a man named Jesus who roughly 2,000 years ago walked on this earth in what we now know of as Israel, then Palestine, that he walked upon that land and that he preached and that he taught and that he was kind to people and that at one moment he gave his life or his life was taken from him, however that works, and he was crucified on a cross. I mean, that's history. And I know a ton of people who just, they believe that God exists and they believe that Jesus lived in history. I even know some people who do not follow Jesus Christ, do not even claim to follow Jesus Christ, but even say, listen, I guess I can't really argue that he rose from the dead. Yeah, maybe God even did that. Like, I'm not following him, but I even get it that maybe that happened. I still don't know how that really applies to me. And that, that kind of that mindset is, is, a, is, a, is a great way to describe um, what was really, really popular in Europe and even in America in the 16, 17, 1800s known as deism, which said, yeah, we can't deny after looking at things like the stars and the world and ourselves, we go, yeah, like somebody made this. And we look at history and you go, Jesus was a real person. We believe that God exists. But then they began to look at their life and they began to go, but what? Like, tell me what's going on right now. And all of a sudden, Jesus and God, they, they were removed and they became observers so it was just a matter of observation. If I were to ask you, like, what is Jesus doing today? You would just say, I don't know. I guess he's just kind of watching us. Kind of weird, isn't it? What's Jesus doing right now? Just watching you. I promise you this will get awkward in a few seconds. <laughs> like, how many of you, that's what Jesus is doing right now? He's kind of watching you. Getting weird? Is this kind of your view of God? Like from up on high, kind of watching you go through your life, watching the world. He's not really actively involved, not really doing anything. He's just watching. And I think if you were to ask me like what many Christians actually believe, it's probably something like that. I, I doubt there are very many atheists, like devoted atheists in this room. I believe there's tons of deists, practically speaking. There's tons of people, if I were to even ask you right now, hey, tell me what Jesus is doing right now, you, you would literally, at best, you would go, I don't know. If I said, but can you begin to postulate maybe what you think from what the, either the scriptures teach, you would have nothing more than just, I don't know, I guess he's just kind of watching us. One of the reasons why heaven seems kind of boring, right? So what are we gonna do in heaven? Just kind of watch things? You see, you know, this really does impact? Like, if that's what you believe, no wonder you worship. I believe in God. Like, no wonder. I mean, it makes total sense that when worship starts at 1110, you're kind of, yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't know if you're trying to be rude. It's just like, what does it really matter if I get in at 1115? I mean, honestly, God's watching me now. He can just watch me for... Like, I'm not really singing to a very real being that is enjoying and taking pleasure in my worship. I can come in anytime I really need to come in. Honestly, don't, don't get too bent out of shape on that. Like we fail to recognize, I do. I mean, I'm just kidding. Maybe I'm speaking to myself this morning, but I just fail to recognize the full reality of Jesus's today, very present, active engagement in my life because he's for the most part, just an observer. 
And so since he's an observer, then if you're going to be consistent, then he is unbelievably disconnected from us. And maybe that disconnect is kind of what you felt in those moments of pain and struggle and difficulty when you are crying out to him and all you got was a sense that he was doing nothing more than watching you. Maybe that's really defined your Christian experience. Like maybe you're a deist, practical purposes. You're a deist because in those most difficult moments, you experienced nothing, you felt nothing, but maybe the fact that he might be watching you. See, I think it's good for us to be honest about the struggles that you and I go through, or even as we're sharing and being real with our faith with the struggles that other people might be going through, like where they're getting from. And I really think that as I think as I read that book, I just thought, yeah, those things are true, but I really do believe he exists. But something else is still broken. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to spend like three weeks to stop and to look at Jesus in succession, looking at everything that he came to accomplish. And so we began by talking about his death and what it accomplished and his resurrection and what it accomplished. And today we're going to be talking about something that the Bible spends less time talking about. You might say, well, why don't we preach about this more? The ascension or what we might want to call the enthronement of Christ. And in part, it's really not preacher's fault. There is less material in this area. The Bible talks far more about what he accomplished in his death and resurrection than it does his enthronement. But his enthronement is still a big deal. And so this morning, we're going to spend a very little bit of time describing like what he has accomplished and then spend the majority of time in light of what he has accomplished. What is he doing today? Like, don't you want to know what Jesus is doing today? I do. And the scriptures really do teach this. So the two books we're going to look at today, Romans is going to be kind of our main text. We're going to be in Romans 8. But before we get there, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews talks a lot about what Jesus is currently doing. The book is basically written to describe Jesus as greater than anything that you could ever find in the Old Testament. And it's not because the Old Testament is bad. It's, you know, it's the difference between Hamlet and Shakespeare. Hamlet's great. For those of you who like Hamlet, right? Macbeth is great. But, I mean, Shakespeare wrote it all. So when you look at it, sure, I mean, there are things that are, are good, but, 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 but Jesus is the one that wrote it all. Yes, the law is good, but Jesus wrote the law. Why would you ever take the law over the lawgiver? That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. And it, it sums up in a, really good, in a really good kind of like succinct fashion Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, describes what Jesus Christ has done, although as the writer is describing what he has done, he can't help but kind of bleed into what he's doing now. Beginning in verse 11, Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices so he's basically describing what all of them saw. Went to the temple today. What did you see? Oh, it was still Josiah the priest. And he was just offering up all the different sacrifices. Oh, that's what he was doing yesterday. Oh, that's what he was doing the day before. Oh, yeah, that's what he was doing the day before. It's like, that's all he does is he offers the same sacrifices all the time. Now, listen, this is what a lot of Christians, I don't know how we didn't know this, but I, I didn't really look so closely at this verse. Look at what it says. 
All those sacrifices offered in the Old Testament that Abraham gave, that Moses gave, that Solomon gave, okay? All of the sacrifices that happened, what does the book say? Which can never take away sins. It's good for us to remember that. Like you, you might think, well, yeah, you know, the Jews do the sacrificial thing and then we just trust Jesus. It's how we're different. Um, actually, but the, the, the Hebrew, get it, listen to the book, Hebrews, written by a Jewish person to Jewish people, is actually describing the fact that all of those sacrifices really didn't do what they were supposed to do. Because by the way, if they really did what they were supposed to do, then Jesus would never need to come. We don't need Jesus if, the, if, if our sacrifices are doing it. We don't need him. Paul says in Romans 3 that nothing, all those sacrifices did where they were a constant reminder that one day a greater sacrifice would be needed. That's what, the, that's what Paul writes. And the Hebrew writer lines up with him. Look at this. Which can never take away sins, but when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. So obviously what Jesus Christ did, and I did something. Every sacrifice before it pointed to it. And then Jesus Christ came along and said, oh, you want to see sacrifice? Look at this. And he was able to accomplish in that what everything before it, all it did was point to. This isn't really doing anything, but it's pointing to something bigger. The sacrifice really isn't doing anything ultimately, but it is pointing to something that which is greater. And that's what the Hebrew writer is saying. So after he did this, he sat down, meaning it is completed. He sat down at the right hand of God. And then it says what he is doing. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. And there the Hebrew writer is describing what you actually see in the Old Testament in the Psalms. That the Messiah would then, after he has accomplished his purpose for God, would sit down and God the Father would then put everything under his feet. That after he's accomplished it, that everything he redeemed, everything that he purchased, all that he fought for would ultimately be given over to him for he alone is worthy. I hope this morning that what you get more than anything else is one of those moments where the Bible begins to like click together. Sure, Jesus died. Okay, yeah, I get it. He bought us. When does he get us? Like, when does he begin to, like, own us and, and then begin to reign over us? Well, in order to reign over us, there needs to be a king. And once he reigns over us, then we are under him. And I know that might sound like, well, I don't want to be under anybody. No, 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 Jesus is worth being under, I promise. It's worth being under his care and his protection. It's worth being under his provision. It's, it's worthy to be under him. And the Hebrew writer says this, verse 14, and notice this. It's a great swing verse. For by a single offering, he, that's Jesus, has perfected. That's why when I ask you, um, so tell me about your standing right now before God, he has made you perfect. He has made you perfect, past tense. He has made you perfect. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you've placed your trust in him, then you are what before God? What's the answer? Perfect. This morning, and it really wasn't planned. It just kind of stumbled across it. I'm kind of, we're finishing up our prayer time in the, uh, in the library over there and, and in walks Miss Genevieve. I don't know if you guys know Miss Genevieve. She's a sweet lady that sits on, in the hallway on the chair saying hi to everybody and she's just literally, uh, you brush your teeth after you're done talking to her. She's so sweet. You know what I mean? Wonderful, wonderful lady. And I looked at her and I said, good morning, St. Genevieve. 
And she said, oh, you must be talking to somebody else. You must be talking, you know, she's, she's truly a very humble person. Now oh, you must be talking. No, I was talking to you. And I asked her, Genevieve, do you not believe that Jesus' blood atoned for you and made you holy? Yes. Boom, I got Genevieve, right? <laughs> Hear me. Saint is just our fancy word for holy ones. We are perfected. We are. Before God, we are perfected. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you stand perfect before him. Do you know that? That's what Hebrews 10 says. Hebrews 10, 14. We are the people that Jesus Christ accomplished, past tense, our perfection before God. That is what we boast in. That is why I'm not afraid of him coming back. You get that? This is such a beautiful verse. Hebrews 10, verse 14. He has, past tense, perfected for all time those who are being, ongoing, sanctified. Another word for sanctified, I know that sounds like a church term. It is. To be sanctified means to be made holy. It means to be made perfect. Literally what he's saying is this. For, speaking of Jesus, he had this single offering, and then he has made us perfect, those he is making perfect. That's literally what it says. He has made perfect those he is making perfect. See, that's the Christian life. This morning, a young lady named Allison gave her life to Jesus Christ. She literally surrendered to him. And she was, as Paul says in Romans 6, she was clothed with him. She was made perfect by the work of Christ and her putting faith in that work. And she was now perfect. And when she got up out of the water, she will now spend the rest of her life becoming more perfect. By the way, that's how we should talk. That's how we should live. That's how we should think. I have been made perfect as God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying Spirit, makes me more like Jesus, the one that is accomplishing this purpose. And that is why Jesus is not just sitting up there watching you. He is actively involved in your life through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is actively involved in your life. He's the one that sent the Spirit. He is actively involved in your life, but he is not involved in your life as a young shepherd, a carpenter. He's not even a miracle worker. You know what Jesus Christ is now? He's king. Did you know that? He's king. See, so you might actually think in your mind, um, and you maybe you've heard preachers say this, that when Jesus Christ came the first time, he came as a humble carpenter. But when he comes back the second time, riding on a great white stallion, he will demonstrate that he is this powerful Lord of Lords, right? I, I would hear that and I would go, yeah, I guess he needs to come back kind of ticked, you know? Because the world's really messed up. And so I know he came like humble and sweet and kind to kind of allure us, to kind of pull us in, right? That's why he came. But when he comes back, it's judgment time. That's really not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is actually that Jesus Christ came as heir apparent to accomplish a task. And once that task was completed, his humility will never change. He was a humble carpenter. He was a humble divine being. And now, because of his completed work, and now sitting on high, seated at the right hand, 
Now he is king. You understand that? That's why he's not gonna come back as a carpenter or a stonemason, whatever you think he was. That's because that's what he was. Now he is, in fact, a humble king. And that's, the why, he, that's why he's coming back like that. Um, I, I know I'm Canadian, so this kind of might maybe, you know, maybe a little more inclined towards me. But have you guys been watching either the, 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 the miniseries The Crown or Victoria? Anybody else? Okay. Phenomenal miniseries, by the way. I just really think it's fascinating, but it might just be my Canadian roots. But one of the things that I find very fascinating is, is that in the early episodes, both of those women, both Victoria and, um, well, I call her just Liz, uh, Queen, Queen Elizabeth, okay, um, or sometimes Betty or Bet, you know, uh, there is this moment where she literally is just, she's a princess, right? Like, but she's not queen. Her dad is king. And so she has something, but she literally is just like a princess kind of person, okay? And she's married and then her dad dies. And then all of a sudden they kind of look at the list. Yep, no, it's you, Liz. You're gonna be the next queen. And there's, there's a moment of time in which she is like queen, but not yet, so she's walking around, and, and she's not really queen yet, but she's kind of queen. By the way, she's already had a boyfriend who became a fiance, who became a husband. And now he is this husband of this wonderful woman who's just kind of like a regular person, just like you and I, but she's about to become her royal highness, the queen of England. It's a big deal, by the way. They make a big fancy crown for her. And then in the big, the big question is like our, like, Prince Philip, are you gonna like get on your knee and bow before your wife? And the answer is, uh, yeah, she's the queen. And I don't know if you remember, there's this big coronation ceremony where she's no longer Lizzie, Betty. She's her majesty. And they go through this incredible ceremony where she walks in and they read these things and, and then all of a sudden they put this crown on her and she sits on this throne and her, she'll never be anything but that again. And her husband walks in and because of who she now has become from the coronation, the enthronement, he bows down before her and he says, my queen, Like that's what's happening in those moments when Jesus is leaving this earth to ascend into the heavens. The entire angelic world, the entire um, rebellious angelic world, that would, those would be demons, now all of a sudden see Jesus Christ in all of his splendor. That's why as Kyle was reading that this morning, you and I got goosebumps. Why? Because we saw for a moment the coronation of Jesus Christ who sure came from humble beginnings. Actually, he didn't. He came from majestic beginnings. And he humbled himself. And then after completing all of that work, he became enthroned again. And that is where he sits. Better yet, and that is where he reigns from. Do you know that Jesus, just like the Son, is not an idea? He is an ever-present glorious, to be worshiped and loved and appreciated, life-giving and sustaining and reigning king of the universe. And he is, listen, this is the part that's most amazing. I know you Americans don't understand this because you don't like kings. Remember that? Okay? 1776-ish, right? You guys remember this? Like, I know you don't like it. But we Canadians... <laughs> very humble, um, mild-mannered cynics. Um, 
There is something beautiful and special. She's our queen. I remember being a little boy, and she drove by. I still remember, all I remember right now is a blue dress. I think maybe that's all she ever wears, but she was wearing a blue dress. And I remember going on a train from Toronto to Kingston, and I got to see her on the train. I remember, oh, I just saw the queen. It was so cool. I just saw the queen. It was so amazing. And what you and I this morning are able to sit under, and, and not, we didn't see, we, we didn't just catch a glimpse of the King Jesus, but he's our King. Just think about that for a moment. Bask in that for a moment. Glory in that for a moment. That this Jesus, who was once just a humble carpenter, is now this majestic, humble king. But he's our king. And what is he doing? Look at Romans chapter 8. Let's read these verses and just get a profound sense of what is actually happening right now in the universe. Paul puts it this way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that has been revealed to us. Now, I know that it's not a good thing to say. I know that one of the least popular things to do right now in the world is to say to someone who is suffering, listen, what you're going through is not that bad. I mean, that is almost the worst thing you can say to anybody. Right now, what we love to do as a culture is bask in our brokenness. Celebrate our sufferings. I mean, what, what Paul said there is just offensive. But it's true. I mean, whether I really like it or not, I probably do want you to just kind of get down and sit in the mud with me. Like, I do want you to just kind of revel in my brokenness. We're all broken and sad. It's just terrible. I get it. But what do you do if our king has been enthroned? Notice what Paul says. Like, there's no suffering that I can have right now that can compare. It's not, even, it's not even worth comparing. And it's not like Paul lived an easy life. There is nothing that I have gone through that can compare to the majesty and the glory that one day, notice this, the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19, for the creation waits an eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Hmm. Maybe you've missed that. I used to think that that verse kind of said, without really reading it slowly, that it was waiting, look at this, creation's waiting, longing for the revealing of the Son of God. Anybody else just kind of quickly just read that and it's the Son of God that it's waiting for? No, what, it's, what is it waiting for? Sons of God. I know you might go, well, then that's not me because I'm a girl. No, no, no. The idea of the sons of God Okay, I mean, that's more of a literal rendering, but it probably isn't, not probably, it is describing the children of God. So look at this. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God to become fully who they are. I know, like you really need like eyes of faith to get that. That all of creation is going, wow, this place is really messed up and this is really broken. But you know what we're waiting for? You know what we're longing for? You know what we can't wait for? We cannot wait for the children of God to be fully children of God, right? Perfect being perfected. And Jesus is, inv is involved in that whole process. He has perfected, he is now perfecting, and all of creation is eagerly looking around it. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, meaning the world is broken, my body is broken, my house is breaking. 
right? My car is breaking down. Everything that I see, everywhere I look, seems to be wearing down, subject to futility, not the way that God ultimately intended. Everything is dying. Everything is breaking down. God is subjecting it to that. What, for what purpose? Notice what he says here. But because of him, didn't want to do this, God is doing this because the world, the creation, has rebelled against him, and God is holding him, holding the creation in that brokenness because of him who subjected it in hope. Your brokenness is not to sit in. Your brokenness is not to be reveled in. Your sin is not to just be merely enjoyed, but is to be put beside this incredible picture, this incredible truth of a king who conquered sin and death and now sits reigning on the throne. That's the picture that we should be looking at. Whether it comes to our sin, whether it comes to our brokenness, this is the picture that we see. Notice how it continues. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Everything, the entire creation, you and I as the image of God, image bearers of God in that creation are longing for that day when what Jesus Christ has accomplished and what he is currently actively involved by the power of the Holy Spirit accomplishing in us, when those two things meet, that is the end of time. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Oh, man, I just hate that everything, I mean, it's, it's that thought that the best thing I can say at a funeral is, man, at least they lived a really, really long time and at least they lived a really, really good life and at least, you know, we were able to enjoy them for those years. That's the best I can say. But because of Jesus Christ, I can now say, and there is a hope beyond the grave. And even though their body was not able to live forever by their trust in Jesus Christ, they have a new body. They have a new life. They have a new faith. Why? Because they put their trust in Jesus Christ. And we can now celebrate that. Notice what he says. Everything is waiting like it's in childbirth. And then he says this, until now. Meaning something is different now. And you want to know the difference? Our king is seated on the throne. And I'm telling you, Understatement of the, day, of the day, that's a game changer. In your life and in mine, over sin and over brokenness, that is a game changer. Look at this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, and for you ladies, daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, past tense, and, new, and now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? No, they already have it. Well, I can't hope for this. I can't hope one day to get married. I can see my wife. Okay, so I don't hope for what I can see. I hope for what I can't see, right? That day when Andrea is free from me. You guys know about this? We go to heaven, and instead of Andrea and I being married, we are just brother and sister in Christ. And by the way, like I know, I know it's hard for you to believe this. That's better for both of us. That's God's plan. 
There is something that is incredible in this process that defies our imagination and our thinking. We're not just hoping for what we can see. We don't do that. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And as we wait, Jesus Christ does not casually observe your life, but he is actively involved in making you into the sons and daughters of God. One major aspect of the work of Jesus Christ right now, I want you to turn back with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 15, gives us a really interesting picture of this. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 15, describes that that activity that Jesus is doing on the throne. It's always hard to talk about God because we're dealing with someone, some being, um, that although our language can begin to describe him, it is not perfect in its description. And so when it talks about God being a shepherd, it's using an analogy that truly he is greater than that. When it talks about God being a fortress or a rock, yeah, there's no rock that can fully describe the strength and the magnitude of who he is. And so I don't know exactly how this works. So you got to kind of just understand that language is doing its best to explain that which is indescribable. God the Father, Jesus Christ, now majestically enthroned on high. The power of the Holy Spirit, it tries to use words to convey, but they all come up short. Here is what he describes in Hebrews 9, verse 15. Talking about Jesus, he says this, Therefore Jesus, now enthroned on high, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, his death, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Essentially, Jesus Christ has accomplished and now he mediates on our behalf. That word mediate is kind of an interesting word because I don't know about you, but sometimes I can actually believe that what Jesus is doing in heaven is going, hey God, like I know Jim's a mess, but I love him. Like go easy on him. But the word mediator, actually it's used in the Bible, describes as someone who before a judge tells the truth about the situation. Are you ready for this? Jesus Christ stands before God right now and he tells the truth about you. How does that make you feel? Any of you get nervous? Seriously, raise your hand if that makes you a little nervous. Jesus Christ right now. Now, by the way, you already knew this. You already knew that God knows everything, right? So Jesus isn't informing God. God isn't going, hey, I've lost track of Jim. Have you seen him? Has he been a good boy? Think about this, though. You want to know the truth about Jim Johnson? I'll tell you the truth about Jim Johnson. He is a mess. And he has rebelled against God willfully. He's decided to live for himself, and he still actually even struggles with that. But you want to know a greater truth about Jim Johnson? He knows he's a mess. He knows that he's broken. And he has decided to place his life and his hope and his trust in Jesus Christ as his righteousness, as his, and he wants his life to resemble the Jesus who died for his life. That's what Jesus wants. And that's what Jesus right now is telling God, not that God doesn't already know. So are you ready for this? Do you want to know the good news of the gospel of God concerning his son? One of the effects of that is right now, God is hearing the truth about you from the mediator, Jesus Christ. That's why we challenge you to put your faith in him. 
So I want to ask you, are you okay with Jesus speaking the truth about you today? I am. Right? Because I know that Jesus is going to tell God the Father, I know he already knows, he's going to tell God the Father the full truth about me. And the greatest truth about Jim Johnson is that he really does believe that Jesus reigns on high. He's king. You remember, right? For those of you that don't get the crown, have never even heard of England, let me tell you, um, maybe you've heard about the Lord of the Rings. Do you remember Aragorn? Aragorn's walking around, and he is this incredible guy, and every once in a while, he stumbles into this fact that guess who he is? I am the king. And you remember that one scene? I can't remember which one it was, probably the second or third episode. He's in that cave and all those ghosts come out and they're like, well, we're gonna get you or what? I can't remember. I don't really know the movie very well. But I remember that scene and I love it. And there's like this amazing sword and he goes to hit him and Oregon just kind of holds out his sword, at least in my mind, that's what he does. And it hits it. Wait, what's going on here? And what's Aragorn saying? Like, I'm the king. Like, I haven't claimed everything yet, but I'm the king. Like what we actually see in Jesus Christ is fast forward to the end when all of a sudden he's not just Aragorn, he's King Aragorn. And that's the one that you have interceding on your behalf. And that's why you go. That's why you connect to God in such a powerful way that when he says, go into all the world and share the good news about me and love and care and serve them and teach them everything. And you go, man, as King of the universe, I sure will do that. Promise you'll be with me? Oh, I promise I'll be with you. Man, if you're the king and you're sending me, I'm going. That's why I've never really understood why, why, why Christians don't actively engage in biblical community. I don't understand how they think like, well, I just don't, I'm not a, really a people person. Yeah, the Bible didn't say, if you're a people person, you should find friends. It said, live in biblical community. That's what it said. And Jesus Christ is coming back, not for independently owned and operated franchises called you. He's coming back for his people. He's coming back for his holy church. The Bible tells you to live with one another and love one another and care for one another and serve one another and admonish one another. That's why we gather. And, and now that you have seen this morning, I think in some way, at least I have, I have been basking in the truth of this text and I literally am going, oh, that's why I have such this incredible urge to grow in my understanding and obedience to who Jesus is because he's the king. He's not some example to follow only. He's a king to be worshiped. Do you know that? That would deserve an amen. We're gonna, we're gonna work on these things. Jesus, maybe I needed to say it more forcefully. Are you ready for this? Here we go, Southern Baptist people. Are you ready for this? Jesus is not merely an example for us to follow, but he is, at, or to, to just to use as an example, but he is actually a king for us to follow and obey. Amen. And that is so true. That is so true. And I pray that's exactly the truth that Jesus is saying about you right now in this very moment. Let's pray, and as I pray, I want to challenge the servers to go back, and uh, we're going to gather around the table as we close this morning. God, thank you.
for Jesus, for what he has done. Thank you for his kindness to us. Thank you, God, for the fact that he did empty himself, that he did subject himself to all of the difficulties of this world so that one day he would reign on high. And I thank you for that, for his splendor, for his greatness, for his goodness. We give you thanks. And God, we worship you. Not because if we don't, we'll go to hell. But God, we worship you because we have looked at you and we have seen this truth about you and it wins our hearts and our minds. So I thank you, God, for pursuing us when we did not deserve it, redeeming us when we were completely helpless and now empowering us and giving us life. Thank you, O great King. We thank you for King Jesus. Amen. As the servers come and hand out the cup and the, uh, the bread, please take it. And I want you to take it kind of on your own time. We're not gonna be doing it collectively. Uh, but I want you to take it, and as you do, just stop and remember just how much this represents a real truth of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Think about how it represents the past of what he has done and the present of what he is doing. And then one day, the Bible says, we will take this together with him. If you are not a believer, I'm not trying to keep anything from you, but this literally is a meal that believers eat together because we believe in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not snack time, it's not a tradition, although it is a tradition. It's not just a custom. This is something that believers do to proclaim the work of Jesus Christ, not generically, but in our lives today. And if you're not a believer, it's fine for you to just let the tray pass by and for you to reflect on the amazing truth that he did that for you. And then we can talk about what it means to join him so that you can enjoy um, what this means. As the sun stands at the center of our solar system, so Jesus stands at the center of the gospel and of all of history. And as the sun gives light and warmth and life itself to those on earth, so Jesus gives life to our mortal bodies through his death and resurrection. And as the sun shines with brilliant and blinding light, so Jesus sits in splendor and glory at the right hand of the Father. You heard this text read over you today during worship from Philippians 2 that says that because of what Jesus has done in his obedience to the Father, that therefore the Father has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is saying there is that one day, everyone will see it. One day, everyone will see him. Our hope has been that over these last three weeks that you've seen it just a little more clearly. So now, brothers and sisters, 
may you rest in the confidence of knowing that your king sits on the throne today. May you live in the power and the freedom that his death and resurrection gives you. And may you place Jesus rightfully at the center of the gospel and of your very lives. Amen. We love you. We will see you guys next week. There will be, as always, men and women down front. We'd love to talk with you if you're interested.